This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by a couple others. Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy V-Day. And Tablet Editor-at-Large Liel Leibowitz. Maze Valentine. And it is known as Tuba'av, where you are from, but here there's more chocolate. And today on the show, our Jew of the Week is a return guest, the author David Sachs, who I think is a prophet. He joins us to talk about his book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And the GOTW, the Gentile of the Week, is another prophet, Bill Finnegan, who uh, who talked with me about surfing and also how to report on war and poverty. Two things he does really well. At the same time. At the same time, which is why I love him. Um, but before we get to that- Everybody it, go surfing in impoverished USA. We are recording on Valentine's Day to air- um, Day after, day after, Morgan, Morgan, Valentine's Day, M- as Mutze, they would say in German. Mutze, Valentine's <laughs> Day. Valentine's Day. Mutze Morgan. And there, I, I just, two things I want to say about this. One is people will often say like, do you have a beautiful Valentine's Day tradition with that, you know, beautiful wife and this beautiful family? I do. Are people not often saying that often. My, my <laughs> beautiful Valentine's Day tradition is not fucking celebrating Valentine's Day. The, the most goyish of it, all. It Could we agree? There is no more Goya. Sounds like Mark has a tradition. Commemoration. Tradition. Sounds Valentine's. like Mark has a tradition. Well, to be fair, people don't say it in that weird, creepy voice I just used, but people often say, oh, what are you doing for Valentine's Day? And the answer is the same thing we do for our anniversary. Nothing. Right. But, <laughs> but somehow the tradition developed of buying our kids a little pack of gum for Valentine's Day. I think I did it when they each get like a 50 cent pack of Wrigley Spearmint like or five Juicy piece, Fruit. The five long the, skinny pieces. Yeah, That's right. And the five long skinny pieces. And for three bucks, I've made my kids happier than By anything. the way, gum to them is is smack. What an amazing commercial opportunity. Themed Valentine's Day candy, but not for lovers saying, will you be mine? But for kids saying, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, things are really romantic since you came along. <laughs> I haven't spent it's five like, minutes yeah, alone, can't alone with your mother. remember last time I was together with my spouse. <laughs> kind of true. I hope you're feeling grateful. Someone please do this for me. By the way, do we know anything about Valentine's? Because I'm going to go ahead right now out of the depths of my ignorance. But St. Valentine's, Valentine's was, was a... Raging guy. Raging guy. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it ends well. Like, right. And the bow and arrow was actually not for love. It was like, don't right. hunt down Jews. Don't Jews. <laughs> and now look at us. We're like, we're just like everyone else. We send Valentine's too. The um, original Valentine's Day involved burning down synagogues. <laughs> the Valentine's were actually notes being like, I'm going to kill you. It was actually, Jew. you took your beloved to a date where you watched a Jew being slaughtered. Like, you, you well, let's I go watch a Jew being so thrown to the lions. Yeah, let's keep Saint and St. Valentine's Day. Anna was complaining yesterday that it's unfair that her Jewish day school doesn't celebrate St. Valentine's Day. And she said, I mean, St. Patrick's Day, I understand because it's like religious. But St. Valentine's Day, just because the word saint is in it doesn't mean it's religious. It's for everybody. And I do want to give a shout out, though, to my brother, Daniel James Oppenheimer, who years ago when he lived in the city, a bunch of friends and he for like maybe three years, this tradition lasted, had a tradition of, of having a turkey for what they called Thanksgiving on Valentine's Day, because Dan's belief was Thanksgiving's the best holiday because it's warm and inclusive and anyone can do it. And it's not. It, it, he just felt no baggage for Thanksgiving. Whereas Valentine's Day, if you didn't have a beloved, you felt like an asshole. So it's friends, friends and, Valentine's yeah, Day? Yeah, so it was like Valentine's friends giving. Friends so for I Valentine's Day, he'd have a massive party where he would cook a big turkey. That's so nice. And it was actually very sweet. And he was always proselytizing for it. And I think he has stopped proselytizing for it. But I want to pick up the... Can I TMI and tell you my Valentine's Day plans? We would yeah. love nothing more. So for my birthday, my mother-in-law got me a massage gift certificate. And I was like, thank you so much. This is so nice. When am I going to use this? I haven't used it. My birthday was in September. I went on the website to look around. I'm getting a, va- getting a massage tonight at five o'clock. Put it on the shared calendar. And Ben was like, what are you, what? You're That's doing awesome. what? 
And I was like, you'll take Edith tonight. You're good. Because nothing says love more than I'm going to go away for a couple <laughs> hours and like, just be in complete solitude. I was like, well, solitude. your mom got this for me, so I'm going to do it tonight. She wants me. To, yeah. She, this was for my wellness. <laughs> Isn't this great that, like, the older you get, your idea of, like, what makes for, like, this perfect glowing evening. <laughs> big alone. Like, at this point, my perfect evening is absolutely no commitments and no reason to be <laughs> and, and extra points if I was supposed to have plans. And, and then someone, they get, someone else canceled. Someone, someone else called canceled. at 3 p.m. and said, I'm really sorry something came up. This is like what saint, manna What from saint heaven. is that? Like Saint Flake and Flake. And flake. It's like Saint, saint, saint Golda. Someone saint. else Someone else cancels your plans on you and you're it's like greatest gift. Especially if you were actually like gonna go. I know, I know. Like you and weren't then even like, planning on canceling yourself. And now hours has opened up. That can also happen <laughs> when you come down with a sickness that's not too bad. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. little, like a cold that's bad enough that you can legitimately say to everyone, I can't do anything for two days. Yeah. I'm just going to have to lie in bed and watch uh, watch Last Tango in Halifax, by the way. One of the shows recommended for you because there's a vicarage and there are British people with plummy accents. And Saint, Sid and Saint I- St. Vicar's Day. St. Vicar's Day. <laughs> and longtime fan Emily Moore recommended it. And having finished with Grantchester, we have moved on to Last Tango in Halifax. And nothing says bliss. Even like, the name Grantchester, it, it <laughs> reads like chat GPT. Like it's, it's an AI directed- Of what we think- It's like, hey, AI- Bring me a, a show with English a vicar. murder. Right. So speaking of Jews, because that's what we do, um, I think we all have to give a big shout out to uh, the, the Jewish community of Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we just were for a truly splendid 24 hours. And we haven't been on the road a lot. We're back on the road and people should bring us on the road. But Ann Arbor memories, Stephanie? Okay, so Ann Arbor was very fun. We got to hang out with some old friends, some new friends, and we were part of the main event, a big federation event um, in town. And after the show, we do what we always do, which is like find a place that's open late and get like a like a a disgusting amount Greasy of food, food. absolute yeah. like, revolting, like just so gross. Yeah. Listener, whatever you imagine, it's precisely what we ordered. Right. So two things happen at dinner. We go to Hopcat, like a bar, like a, and this is a college town, so it's not actually. Sometimes it's actually quite hard to find a place that's open at like nine. Um, <laughs> not in Ann Arbor, yeah, Michigan, not in Ann Arbor. on a we Thursday. Like, they were like, I don't know, that we have room for you here. Um, but so we we were there. We were eating, we ordered a hundred. Like, we're, we're cool. So basically, this hello this, fellow kids. This waitress comes over. She takes our order for like. 100 sets of beer battered fries. I officially was too many fries. I like I I did not know 100 beers and 100 orders yeah, of, of beer, beer battered, battered fries. fries. Exactly. And so I'm sorry, I have a reputation to uphold here. Two martinis. Yes, That's yes, true. It's never true. beers. I true. witnessed it. Um it was funny cuz at the event they had had all these really fun stickers that they were giving out to people and some of them said like podcast listeners, some of them said like my first main event at Ann Arbor and then there was one that said I love my Jew crew. So I obviously was wearing a few of them. One of them was that. And so the waitress comes next to me to order. And I sort of like did this weird thing that I'm I'm, I'm going to come clean about. I took the stickers off and put them <laughs> on my leg from my shirt to my leg. Because I was like, you know, I'm wearing a, a, a sticker that says I love my, I heart my Jew crew. Just, just in case the waitress is a follower of St. Valentine's. Yes, and therefore exactly. Wants and has her, has, her quiver, you know, yeah. has her quiver uh, ready, ready for me. <laughs> and so... After she does the order, she comes around and she says, by any chance, do you guys host a podcast? And I said, yes, because one of the stickers on my leg said podcast person. And then she says, and is it by any chance about how much you love your Jew crew? And I was like, <laughs> weirdly, yes. And she says, look at my ring. She pulls out her ring that has tiny Hebrew letters on. I actually can't read it. I don't know if it was because the ring was like the, the, the letters were really small. But it said chesed. Right. It said chesed. I was trying to remember what it said. Loving yeah. kindness. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, I took a religion. I was a religious studies minor. She was a comp re comparative religion minor at the University of Michigan. And her name is Kat. And she's the star waitress. She loves Jews. Top Kat. She knows more about Judaism yep. than like most people. Yep. 
And so I, we just had the most fun time with her. She was amazing. And she loved Kat. And I mean, she was one of those waitresses who did that great thing where she just started ignoring her other tables. And I mean, if you're her manager, please understand that she was actually serving the greater good by spending time with us because we were a big group. We stayed late. We spent a lot of money. She was serving the people. But did she ignore a couple other tables to talk religion with us? She did. My favorite bit, of course, was when she asked, so what goes on on your podcast? (laughs) And me being several martinis in uh, said, oh, Holocaust jokes. (laughs) And poor, poor cat, just the look on her well, face. She's like, I don't know she, how to react to she that. She sort of stifled Am I laugh? laughing? Yeah. Am I walking away quietly? I don't know. Is this a test? There was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> like, can I laugh? Stifled a laugh. And then like was unclear if she could laugh. And then we said, it's okay. You like, can permission laugh. Permission to laugh, cat. Permission to laugh, cat. And uh, she's, I, I think, I think she's, it'll be two years from now when her own podcast is dominating the Spotify religion chart. So right. she was if awesome. you're in Ann Arbor, go say hi to Kat. Tell and her the Jew crew loves her. Shout out to Oren, who was there also and came up to us a little bit after. I was like, I was just at the event. My grandma <laughs> is obsessed with you guys. She told me to go. <laughs> I will say things did not go quite so well for me because I was very excited to see my dear friend, Andy Markowitz, who's on the show, wrote this amazing book that I still obsess over, Passport as Home, about the joys of being a ruthless cosmopolitan. Beautiful memoir. And we have an hour before the show. And Andy says, why don't you meet me at Bistro Zola? And I'm thinking, Bistro Zola is such a particular name. I'm just going to put it in the Google Maps. I'm just going to go to Bistro Zola. I go to Bistro Zola, and I'm delighted to see that it's right by our hotel. And I go and I wait and Andy's texting me, where are you? And I say, I'm here at the bar. And he's like, no, I'm at the bar. It's like, but the restaurant's empty. It was like one of these Twilight Zone type of moments. <laughs> You're like, do and, I exist? And for, for three minutes, I was like, is this like a time-space continuum issue? Am I being like, punked? Where's has, Ashton? Ha, have this Jewish space lasers kicked in? I don't know. And so then I take out the phone. Turns out there are two Bistrozolas, <laughs> which I actually don't think are related to each other. 11 miles apart. There's the one you don't go to. Miles. Exactly. Yeah. It's the most Jewish thing. It's like, oh, that Bistro Zola? <laughs> when you saw Andy, did you say, j'accuse of sending me to the wrong <laughs> I Bistro like, Zola? No, I, I, I felt like Dreyfus myself. Do you feel, you felt like a true ruler's cosmopolitan? Completely. Because you Couldn't had no rights. However, you did not order the drink that Stephanie invented that night at the live show, the Rootless Cosmopolitan, the best <laughs> name for a Jewish drink ever. If we got nothing else out of Ann Arbor, and we got lots out of Ann Arbor, it is the fact that we have to come up with a recipe for the rootless cosmopolitan. What makes a Cosmo rootless? I would say it's just a Cosmo, maybe with a with a drop of a blood of a Christian child. <laughs> I, I was going to say like a stemless martini glass, but, but you, you, go, you go off. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, if you have other thoughts on how to make a rootless cosmopolitan, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. News of the Jews. News of the Jews. So you guys went to see Bernard-Henri Lévy during the Super Bowl? Before the Super Bowl. Nathan Sharansky. Okay. It was I the actually Jewish Super Bowl. went to a Super Bowl party at Rabbi Skolnick's house in Hamden. The other Jewish Super Bowl. The other Jewish <laughs> Super Bowl with the other rabbi because his granddaughter is in my daughter's class. And we went and there was food and beers. And a game was on, which I didn't watch, but I stood around and like heard people holler. And apparently during the game, there were some ads shown because all people care about is the ads, right? And some of the ads were these Christian ads from this billion dollar ad campaign that has the Jewosphere and the Christosphere in all, you know, all aflame with, with questions. The ads were put out by this 
nonpartisan, ecumenical Christian community basically saying, what was the tagline? It was like- Jesus, he gets us. He gets us, right? And for some reason, the idea that Christians would actually spread the faith, which is, you know, the thing that actually they do. Christians do. <laughs> that Christians do. Always, it's kind of the brand, you know? Always <laughs> shocks some people who say, how dare they proselytize me? Whereas I'm like, bring it on. I, you know, I always invited the missionaries in for, for a Coke when I was a kid. Drove my parents crazy. Um, AOC tweeted- uh, Something like, way to put a pretty face on fascism. <laughs> Did you see right. that too? It's like, sure. Like, because there were people in the ads hugging each other and- Faith equals fascism faith equals- for, for the communists. That goes without saying. But all I could think was, you know, that it is time for Jews to come up with our own ad campaign. And one of my one of my favorite bits of, of obnoxious- Rav talk, Nachman. He gets us. He gets us. <laughs> he gets us? <laughs> Moshiach, Moshiach, Moshiach. We get him. We get him. I don't know. You know, Maybe. there is this- there is this um, this canard in Judaism that we are somehow prohibited from proselytizing and we're not. It's just we never did because historically, if we, we did- We would be yeah, killed. They would kill us. The Come local, up with the uh, murdered. The local prince or douchey or whatever, douchey vicar. vicar would have us slain. So we- St. Valentine's. We have good reason for not going out and trying to, you know, proselytize to the people who allow us to live on their lands. But we can. We could take out a Super Bowl ad. We could take out a Stanley Cup ad. Why not just do it during the live broadcast of the Nobel Prize announcements? That would be on brand. <laughs> what if it's like an Elijah type thing where it's like, open the door? I don't know. No, no, that doesn't seem. We'll it, workshop it. The ad. Did you guys watch the ads, by the way? No. The, the ads are actually quite beautiful. They don't. Really, it's one of those things where you don't know what you're watching. Did you're it just, work? It's a lot of guys. I have something to. <laughs> something to tell you. What aren't those ads like that Yours you see around Christ. that are like kindness, pass it pass on. It. What are those? What are those? What are those? <laughs> you're like, uh, I don't want to go. The more, to, more you know. Yeah. You know. You're like, I don't no, want to go to that website. What would a Jewish Super Bowl ad The Jewish be? Super Bowl ad would be. Mark, you had some good ideas. I had some good, okay. So my idea was that the tagline, instead of he gets us, which is the Jesus one would be, you're welcome. Like, look what we've done for you. <laughs> yeah. Like, Diana, what? That's, that's not good enough. So it would be, it would be like, we gave you the weekend. You're welcome. Like, it'll be a whole thing about someone slaving away for five days and just suffering and on Mono, the commute and finally gets back and he's like, welcome. it's Friday night and they get to power down. Lactose intolerance. Like, You're welcome? It's lactate. No, it's actually, it's like- <laughs> um, You're welcome. Uh, Tofuti cuties. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. That was literally uh, a Jewish invention. Um, I like that because it kind of sounds like, You're welcome. if you know where my head's at, it's like the Moana song. It's like when- Dwayne Johnson sings You're Welcome, but instead of like all the things that Moana should be thankful for, it's like all the things the Gentiles should be thankful for. Totally. Totally. And I think- I like I mean, that. You're when, welcome. When you, Jesus. You're, you're welcome. welcome. <laughs> right. What was the, there was, there was some like old ditty. I don't know who it was. The line was, um, Marx, Einstein, something, and Freud. No wonder the Gentiles are annoyed. <laughs> and it was like all these people that the Jews gave us. Marx, Einstein, George Santos, and Freud. <laughs> what about that? That would be our ad. George Santos. He's not one of us. Speaking of George Santos, this just keeps coming. They just keep claiming to be Jews. Uh, in the news this week, Re Republican Representative Anna Paulina Luna claimed she was Jewish. Some relatives Can you say her name again and, and slow? Because the name itself is poetry. Anna Paulina Luna. Anna Paulina Luna. It is a beautiful name. Republican representative, I'm reading from Insider, Anna Paulina Luna of Florida may have misrepresented her religious background and only recently began identifying as Hispanic, according to the Washington Post. Luna, just elected to Congress from Florida's 13th, said in an interview with Jewish Insider in November that her father raised her as a Messianic Jew, a person that identifies as Jewish and who believes Jesus is the Messiah. I was raised as a Messianic Jew by my father, said Luna. I'm also a small fraction Ashkenazi. And this is this is like the <laughs> new I want I want to print up little buttons that say small fraction Ashkenazi. Like a smidge, a bissel Ashkenazi. 23 and Jew. 
That's right. Abyssal Ashkenazi. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I was raised as a Messianic Jew. I am also a small fraction Ashkenazi. It's like <laughs> amazing. I'm everything. I'm just everything. It's just it's just. Oneness. I'm an everything. Dale. I like this. This is a this is a really good George Santos reboot. You know, with with a woman lead, strong yes, female yes. protagonist. Yeah. Throw in the messianic this is thing a great, here. Confuse great, us all. Confuse us all. Great I love sequel this. to the thing. Um, but you yeah, know, this Mark, this this like, hits on your thing about like people want to be Jewish. People want to be a small fraction. Everyone wants Jewish to lineage. be a small fraction. Anything. Yeah. Right. If you could be, if if your great 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 grandfather could be an axe murderer, that's cool. Right. Everyone wants to be a small fraction Jewish murderer. Native American. There's no bad thing to be a little bit of. It just makes, gives you some flavor. You didn't read the second line of the headline, which is some relatives question that the idea that she was raised Jewish and say her grandfather fought for the Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, guys, you got to do some oppo on before you before you run. Maybe maybe nobody wants to be a small fraction that a small fraction. It was actually a small fraction Nazi, not Ashkenazi. Also this week in News of the Jews, a lot of people talking about this really, really interesting news from from Barcelona, Spain, where the mayor has severed ties with uh, the city of Tel Aviv. I actually wasn't aware that cities had ties with other cities. Uh, Seriously, I don't don't actually— They write letters to each other. I don't actually know what that means. Like, I remember as a little kid the whole sister city thing being very big, but I don't really know what it means. But uh, maybe it's just symbolic. It's still quite— quite significant. The Barcelona mayor severed ties with Tel Aviv, um, saying that they were practitioners of apartheid and Barcelona wanted nothing to do with them. Uh, You can read all about this uh, in many major Jewish news outlets, but but we happen to have a man on the street in Barcelona. Our uh, colleague Eli Blyer is there, and uh, he went out and found some real live Jews of Barcelona to ask them what they thought of this. Hey, it's Eli. I'm out here on the streets of Barcelona to ask some local Jewish folks about what they think about Ada Calau, Barcelona's mayor, dropping Tel Aviv as Barcelona's twin city. People have been talking of nothing else. More likely than not, it's got to do with uh, the elections coming up in the city. It feels like she wanted to make some sort of gesture to keep this part of her base happy. I, of course, I cared. I was a little bit sad. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that criticizing a government that also applies to Ala Kalao's government is totally fair and legitimate. I didn't really care because uh, it doesn't really matter to me, to be honest. But uh, I think that if this thing is not good for each side, so I don't understand also why to do this. Yeah, honestly, I, I think it's sad. I think it's counterproductive for Barcelona to let go of a partnership with Tel Aviv when Tel Aviv has similar values to Barcelona. Why are European city governments even getting involved in criticism of specifically Israel? My aunt asked me, you know, why not Iran and why not Russia? And the only thing I could respond was, well, Barcelona doesn't have a twin city program with, you know, Shiraz. What are twin cities? Sorry. <laughs> I don't even know what that term means. Can you explain they, uh, they <laughs> help Israel, but I, I suppose it's that, but I don't know what happened. I feel upset when I hear this kind of news. Also, it's unbalanced to what uh, I've seen of Catalonia doing. I've been to a public like Hanukkah lightning thing in the middle of like a big square in front of like the mayor's office or something like that. And there's like a lot of like politician support saying like we embrace the Judaism and we don't want to do the things that we did in the past. So like it doesn't make sense, you know, it's like they're like contradicting. So like. What message are they really trying to give to us, the Jewish community here? Are they supporting us or not, you know? Muchas gracias. Uh, thank you. <laughs> A ti, gracias. De nada. 
Thank you. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Obrigada. Okay, that's all from Barcelona's Jewish community. Back to you in New York. Adeo from Barcelona. My favorite part of the story is that Madrid has apparently been like, hey, we'll partner with them. Like, if you don't want them anymore, we'll take them. Right. Tel Aviv is a major cat, is a major <laughs> fine. When they're single again. Yeah, like their dance card. A lot of suitors for Tel Aviv. That's our tablet colleague, Ellie Blyer in Barcelona. Liel, will you take us to Israel for our next story? I will with a disclaimer, which is uh, we very deliberately did not fact check the news <laughs> item we're about to share. I was very tempted to, but then I was also very afraid that it will turn out to be a complete fabrication. This comes to us from a Facebook group called I Fucking Love Science, which is a huge and somewhat credible uh, Facebook group. And a website. As, as such. These, There's a website. Must as, be true, as my as, kids yeah. say. As these things they go. They read it. Uh, we made, again, no effort, no mm-hmm. effort None. to verify this whatsoever because, well, the reasons will soon be uh, obvious. Headline. Retired, can't even read this on a straight face. Retired Israeli head of space security claims Earth is collaborating with a galactic federation. Goes the story. The former head of Israel's space security program, Chaim Eshed, has either just spilled the biggest secret in world history or is deeply (laughs) delusional. Eshed allegedly claims a galactic federation has been in touch with the governments of the United States and Israel, but asks for its existence to be kept secret. He's uh, spent 29 years as the head of Israel's space security program. <laughs> He's also a professor at the Technion. Uh, and he made this claim with an interview with a big Israeli newspaper. There's an agreement between the U.S. government and the aliens, he said. <laughs> they signed a contract with us to do experiments here. They, too, are researching and trying to understand the whole fabric of the universe. And they want us as helpers. <laughs> First of all, wait, who is they? they? Is they America or the they, aliens? They, they, they is the aliens. First of all. <laughs> Could there be a more Jewish thing than the aliens having their own, basically, federation? <laughs> I was literally just thinking that. It's like, we're doing across the USA in part with help from the federations of North we America. Have, we have a young leadership program here in the Galactic <laughs> Federation. We raised $180 million. When I, was is, in, <laughs> when I was in grad school, we had a reading group and we would get, you know, we'd read an article and then talk about how it made us feel or whatever. That sounds and very there, grad school. <laughs> right. And there was this woman who had come to grad school after three years, three gap years between college and grad school working for the Federation, uh, the Federation of Greater whatever, Omaha. Greater Mars. And periodically, and every article she read, she would then say, and the room was like two Jews, me and her, and then a bunch of Gentiles studying church history. And she would always say, this reminds me of the way they do things at the Federation. And finally, one day, this sweet guy who ended up becoming a Luther and pastor said, excuse me, is this a Star Trek reference? <laughs> he had no idea what she meant by the Federation. And she just assumed everyone knew the Federation. And he thought she was talking about the, the aliens. She was talking about the Intergalactic Federation. Right. I Wait love until this. You, you meet the, the, the lionesses of Saturn. <laughs> you raise a hundred million I would space like to bucks. do a live show at their General Assembly. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is on Pluto? Yes. Galactic They're taking Federation, back Pluto. If you're listening, uh, we'll cut you a very good yeah. price. Any any planet of your choosing. By the way, I think this was just like a, a fake out. This was like a, a guerrilla marketing ploy for the next season of Fauda when Daron has to go undercover on Mars yeah. to help with the Federation. But can you imagine like 
<laughs> the galactic. Let's assume for a second that aliens exist. I mean, I speak mean, as a assume. very patriotic <laughs> Israeli. Is this really the country that you would choose to collaborate with? <laughs> the Galactic Federation is like, what country is really, really, you know, productive? Has your shit together. Here and like, has yeah. everything together and knows its stuff. These guys. These guys, Oh, right. let's go with a country that right. has had 17 elections in the last three weeks. Right. Like, those are the people. Not who Switzerland, order. where things are actually locked Correct. down tight. Israel. Israel. Our Jew of the Week this week is a returner. He's David Sachs. He's the author of Jewish classics like Save the Deli and human classics like The Revenge of Analog, which truly is one of my favorite books of all time. It's, it's one of the books I will, I will pay retail and buy copies for friends of mine and force it on them. He joined the three of us to talk about his most recent book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. David, or as I like to call him, David Sachs, Welcome back to Unorthodox. It is great to be in my house still, I guess. Um, I, I do recall fondly our last time we were in studio, in situ. We were. You know, in that glorious month of February 2020 when we're like, I guess I better wash my hands after going pee. Right. So you mentioned in this book, The Future is Analog, which is another masterwork, and that you had to do your last book tour about your book about small businesses over Zoom. And I thought, yeah, uh we got you in person a couple of weeks before it dropped. You were literally the only thing I did. I did one other podcast. A guy came to my house in Toronto because he, he lived here. Uh, you were the only, yeah. So uh, fond memories. So what you're saying is you saw us in person and then a couple of days later, a global pandemic started. Coincidence? Lab <laughs> so- my ass. Um, so you have a lot of books behind you. We love your book on small businesses. We love your book on the past and future of the of the delicatessen. I, of course, you know, consider the Revenge of Analog my personal Bible. Now you're back with a New Testament to the Revenge of Analog, or as some might say, a Book of Mormon, a Latter Day Testament. I, I think it's more of like a Mishnah, to be honest. <laughs> um, and I want you to tell us exactly the story of this book. So you know. Let's go back to those dark dates, right? It's April 2020. I am recording podcasts in the closet in the basement bedroom of my mother-in-law's lovely country house where I'm living with my family. And for every interview I'm doing for the new book that I am still birthing into the world during this thing, I'm getting requests from media all over the world, Spain, Argentina, Germany, to talk to them about what the future of analog is. Because I've written this book, The Revenge of Analog, which really looked at an ongoing phenomenon, this sort of surprising resurgence of non-digital technologies, goods and services. Why were independent bookstores coming back? Why was everybody buying turntables again and vinyl records? Why were people writing in moleskin notebooks? What did this say when everything was uh, supposed to be becoming more digital? And so all these people were asking me at this time, well, what does this say for the future of analog now that this is our permanent way of being? Now that you know the pundits are telling us and the people in the tech industry this is the new normal. Zoom is the new normal for work. Virtual school is the normal for education. Shopping is the new normal online. No one's ever going back to a grocery store again. What are you, crazy? And even in the Jewish world, you know, how wonderful is it that you can just sit at home in your PJs and, um, you know, sing Micha Mocha on a Saturday morning without having to get up and drive to shul or 
walk to shul. How great is that? It, it, it opened up this world of Judaism. You know how many Jews in Toronto were like, I went to services at the Park Avenue synagogue. Like, I mean, basically there were three shuls during pandemic. There was Central Synagogue, Park Avenue, and Ikar. There were three, the, the entire Jewish world was reduced to three mega churches. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. All, good, all good shuls, by the way. Wonderful. But shuls. apparently there are only three of them. Uh, and I was just saying, there was this central assumption behind all these questions, which was like, well, the future is obviously this. We've been told this is what the future is going to be. The future is going to be digital. You're going to be doing as much, if not more, through your computers and screens. And that's where we're headed. How could you possibly believe the future is anything else? And I was just astounded because what I was experiencing was, for the most part, pretty miserable. Like, it was no future that I wanted to live in. And as I wanted my kids back at school, I wanted to go to a theater and see an actual show and not the Disney Plus production. The world ran a test and said, okay, go all digital for two years. Let's see how it is. This is it. This is your your A-B testing. And for the most part, you know, obviously there were certain things that people preferred and worked well, and it's great to record a podcast without having to go to a studio. It's very convenient and it works fine, but there was a disassociation. And I think the the growing misery and unease we all felt in every aspect of our life, including our Jewish life, really became, it became apparent that there was something missing. And that thing I called analog, which, you know, before was like, oh, easily identical things, books, records, whatever. But this was the entirety of human experience as we've known it as physical beings in this world, right? Face-to-face conversations, interpersonal relationships that weren't mediated by a technology, physical spaces, and the way we interact with them, and everything sensual that comes from living as a creature on this planet. And so that's what this book sort of was a response to. It's journalistic. I did, I don't know, 200-something interviews with people. But it is, you know, an argument. The most moving part for me, and you look at seven different aspects of human existence. You look at, you know, prayer and soul life and commerce and arts and conversation and how all of them suffer in this digital world and can be better and will be better in a future analog world when we're fully analog again. The arts one was so interesting to me. And you talk about how exciting it is to see Hamilton or to go to a spoken word concert or to see a dance performance. And you point out that the arts community was phenomenal about moving online. Every kind of artistic experience pretty quickly moved online and then pretty quickly said, actually, we'd rather do it from our balconies and out in the street and not be online. And I think while there were some successes, you point to Erica Badu as someone who actually can pull you in online in a very beautiful, magical way. You then say, look, there are very few Erica Badus. And actually- Yeah, her Adon Olam is amazing, by the way. <laughs> Nothing like it. <laughs> I mean, so how is it that the arts community was both a little bit successful, but ultimately had to re-engage analog? I think that's that's pretty telling, right? And And, you know, what goes for arts goes for rabbis and schools and meetings. And I think it's that- when we go to a concert, right, we're going to hear music. And music at its essence is information. Each note, each sound is a wavelength of energy. And that wavelength of energy can be captured and transferred in all sorts of different ways. You could press it into plastic and play it on a turntable. You can digitize it into ones and zeros and have it as an MP3 that you stream through your headphones as you're sitting on the subway or driving in your car, whatever, sitting at home in your living room. But we've known, Walter Benjamin wrote about this 100 years ago, there is a fundamental difference between the information of what that performance is, you listen to Keith Jarrett's The Colne Concert, or you're actually there 
anyone who's been to a concert, anyone who's been to a play, anyone who's been to the crappiest Hebrew school production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which my family is going to in December. Not a Hebrew school production, a professional production. There is a fundamental difference between the lived experience of something and the informational digestion of it, right? The transfer of that thing. And that is the same reason why schools online were a failure all over the world for everyone from kindergartners to postgrad university students, because the fundamental misunderstanding of ed tech and remote virtual learning was that school is a place to deliver information. No, school is a place where relationships occur in a physical space. And in that environment full of senses and talking and feeling, you learn things. And it's the caring about the learning. And that's the same when you go to a performance. And it's the same when you go to a shul. I went to my first play in two years the other night. It's this wonderful production called The Shark is Broken, which is about the making of the movie Jaws. If you love Jaws, it's the greatest thing in the world. But it's it's not just like I could have watched some high-definition streaming version of the thing, and it would have been somewhat entertaining, but it's nothing compares to the real thing. And I think we just, we lost sight of that. You know, it's so interesting. And, and you wrote a piece in Tablet based on this book. It's called It's Time to Show Up. And there's a very Jewish argument for analog, it seems. And I'm just going to gonna read you something you wrote because I was I found it very, very, very really removing. So you write, being Jewish is being there, wherever it is you feel Jewish, to actually go and experience, be with other Jews face-to-face, schwitzing in the same JCC steam room together in a way you just can't digitize, dial up, or stream through a headset you strap onto your face. And like, to me, that is really, really right. You know, I think, of course, we can all acknowledge the accessibility that virtual offerings give to a community that might not have been accommodated before. But you basically say, like, if you can do it, show up. Don't be the person on the screen in the center of the synagogue where we see everyone at home. It's a straightforward thing. It's the thing that I missed. And yet our community... And when I say our community, I mean reform and conservative Jews. I think the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox were always showing up. They were, you know, they were going to like 500-person funerals in, in, the, in the peak of all the COVID waves. They had no problem with it. I want to actually throw out one counterexample to you. Maybe it's not a counterexample. Maybe it all makes sense. It does seem that everyone I know who does want to marry and have sex and procreate now meets their partner online. Is that like the one thing that actually digital turned out was fabulous for is that you're in a big city, you're sick of the bar scene, you feel you're meeting the same people over and over again. But, you know, if you want to find the other person in the world who thinks that The Assistant by Bernard Malamud is the best book ever, Match.com or whatever they're using these days will help you find that person. Like, was that actually a net plus for society? Listen, I think there are many advantages to digital technology. This conversation we're having now, which again, would have been very difficult. So delightful if not impossible to do remotely previously, right? The fact that I can connect with people and wrote this book from home and, and, and the fact that you can, as a publication, reach out and read articles and thoughts from Jewish people around the world, hear music, order food, whatever you want to do. But it's not exactly a substitute, right? It's not the everything. For some people, it works out great. Other people talk about the difficulty of the online dating and how it's... You know, my brother's single and he said it's just like it's exhausting that it's endless streams of messages and a fire hose of sort of things and then people just ghost you it's like 90 percent of the people like write you back once and never reply <laughs> and um 
It's not a perfect thing. And I think that's it. It's, it's pushing against this idea that digital is this utopian ideal. And I think there's a lot of people in the, the Jewish world that thought that, that thought that this is the solution for shul engagement or Jewish community engagement, that the young people are online. We've got to get online with the young people. Right. Explain this to me. So so why would people in so many spaces in the arts and Jewish life, etc., who really ought to have known better, really ought to have known that the essence of the experience is analog, go so quickly and so enthusiastically the route of, oh, yeah, let's do digital? I think there is this peer pressure in a way, a fear of missing out, a fear of being left behind as the world in modernity sort of moves up. And I think we saw these examples over the past decade and a half to 20 years of these companies and these technologies, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, just blowing everything in their way out of the water, right? And this was the future. And anything that wasn't part of that was just going to be crushed and left in the dust. And there was sort of a fervor behind that. And I think for people or institutions that were struggling or searching for identity or searching for solutions, it provided a very easy and sort of, I don't know, purchasable answer to that. Oh, well, I guess the, the future of engagement has to be online. The future of Jewish culture is, is digital. Um, let's invest in these things. And there's been good things that have come out of that. No question. Tablet is a great example, right? But again, it's, it's not the only thing. And I think if it comes at the expense of the thing that makes us who we are, that embodied sense of Jewishness, a people that are part of a world and a community and relationships and the way we interact with that is most meaningful when it is physical and visceral and real, then we've, we've missed the boat, right? And, um, and so that attraction is its simplicity. Sometime before this conversation ends, I wanted to talk about social prescribing. Is that what it was called? It was this thing in England where basically professionals found friends for you. And it was both very moving, but also made me think, what has broken in us that these people can't find friends themselves? What was social prescribing? Social prescribing is a practice that uh, emerged, I guess, in the past 20 years out of the National Health Service in the UK. And they were looking at the rising problem of isolation and loneliness and how it was leading to all these other issues in people's physical health, um, people who had diabetes and heart disease and um, substance abuse issues and issues with whatever was going on in their life, right? And they were going to these medical clinics and the doctors were like, look, there's not much we can do for these people. There's not a lot of drugs we can give them. What these people really need is to come in and talk to someone. They actually need friendship because they're just isolated and alone. And there's been this rise of this around the world and there's all sorts of reasons for it. But I think the most obvious one is like the lifestyle we have built in the world as it's become more modern and as it's become more mediated through computers and digital technology is one where people are increasingly isolated. You could sit in your house and never leave it and just click and talk to people and get everything you need brought to your door and that is a dangerous thing. And so social prescribing brings them together with social workers and community centers, and it prescribes socialization in a way that actually gets these people to feel comfortable. So it could be a baking club or a gardening group or a group that does nature walks once a week or some other thing, right? And you think about these, the loss of the third place in the Jewish community, the men's clubs and the women's auxiliaries and Hadassah and 
the schwitzes i mean we could sit shiva for the leal's a big schwitzer actually you've you're you're preaching to the to the moist almost every week where brooklyn oh coney island interesting mm. interesting brighton beach Oh, interesting. <laughs> Avenue X. We got to get to that Toronto Schwitzian. The Toronto <laughs> Schwitzian, yes. There is, I'll tell you about the ambassador. Uh, it's like, it's, anyway, the lack of the third place thing, right? We, we've, we've lost this place where people will just naturally come together, right? We don't have the necessity to go to Goldfarb's meat market every day because you can go to Costco once a week or just put on your fresh direct order and get your kosher meat delivered to your home. You don't have to walk to shul every day like all the people do in the PJ library stories that my kids get um, because you just go once a week or you, you call it in or whatever. That sense of like the places where you would come together and talk to people and maybe it's just, oh, hi, Stephanie. Good morning. How are you? know What's happening? Oh, my back, you know, whatever. And and that builds your sense of who you are in the world. I love that, by the way, your first kind of instinct in this, in this like wordplay was a complaint. What's happening? Oh, my back. I think we're all amongst True. our people here. So <laughs> let's be honest, right? If you were to leave our listeners, the J Crew, with a lesson or two on how to be, how is one to be if we've forgotten how coming out of the pandemic? It's what I said in that story I wrote for the website. Show up, right? Be there. That's how you have to be. In the places in your life where it matters. If, you know, I'm not saying show up and like, instead of writing emails, read everything to people in front of their houses. Do the things that make sense to you to do when it's convenient digitally, but when the things that matter in your life, whether they're for work, whether they're for your family, whether it's part of your Jewish life or your other aspects of it, the things that are going to be the most meaning, the things that you actually experience with your full body. So show up. David Sachs, author of The Future is Analog. You're my Thanks favorite. for showing up. Thank you for showing Thank you for being here now as a great man, as a great Jew once said. Thank Leonard you for being on Tour of the Week. Was that it? Yeah. Next year in Toronto. <laughs> excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Box. First of all, some of you may remember that last week we answered a letter that John Matthew IV had written to Robert Scaramuccia about the newsletter. Robert had said, are you the J. Crew? Are you J. Crew? How do I address all of you? And John Matthew IV said, as a Gentile, let me just say, I'm happy to be part of the J. Crew. Then Robert posed the question, 
does Jake have a hyphen? And John Matthew IV, who is angling to be the Gentile of all time on our show, I think he, he wants an invite. He writes back and says, dear unorthodox, definitely go with the hyphen. Thank you, John Matthew the fourth. The fourth. The fourth. Quad. We're calling him Quad. If John Matthew the fourth ever becomes Pope, I don't know if he's Catholic, but he doesn't even have to change his name. No. He's already Pope John Matthew fourth. Pope John Matthew the fourth. If you want to drink a little what John Matthew the fourth is drinking, subscribe to the newly revamped and beautifully written newsletter by going to tabletm.ag slash unorthodox newsletter. Stephanie, I believe this next letter is for you. I am so glad to hear the careful way Julia Whalen, one of your recent guests, finds out about pronunciations. I listened to A Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, which is about Jesus and the possibility of his having had a wife. There were not a lot of Hebrew words in it, but it's early Judaism, and he goes off to the caves to say the Shema. Except the reader pronounces it Shema with a long E, an accent on the first syllable, numerous times. The greatest superhero ever. <laughs> Shema. Shema, princes of power. <laughs> I wrote to the publisher explaining the importance of the word and suggesting that the author would want to know if she didn't know already and if they were going to reproduce or put out more versions that they correct the pronunciation. I wish the reader had been as careful as Julia. Regards, Susan Stock. Shima, Yisrael. He went to say the Shima. Shima. <laughs> that's, that's bad. That's bad. That's, that's a lot, a lot to take So, in. So guys, for those of you who think the Jews dominate media, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody caught it. All it went through, there was a director, there was an engineer, there was a reader, there was another. Nobody said, wait a second. Well, folks, it's Shema. No, actually, it's Shema. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Shema. I'm a Shemama. It said, I'm not an Ema, I'm a Shema. Finnegan is our Gentile of the Week. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he reports on issues of international conflict, war, and poverty. And he's also an avid surfer, which he wrote about in his memoir, Barbarian Days, Surfing Life. Here's Mark's conversation with William Finnegan about all that and more. William Finnegan, thank you for being on Unorthodox. Hey, it's my pleasure. So I've been fanboying about your work in a very undignified way on this show for a very long time. It seems to me that you write, broadly speaking, about two things. One is uh, systemic injustice and oppression of the worst kind. And the other is beautiful outdoor sporting. <laughs> so surfing or rock climbing. And I'm curious if those are at all one sensibility in your mind or if they're just kind of two muscles that get to trade off and one saves you from, from the darkness of the other. I think to sort of the latter. I was just in El Salvador a couple of weeks ago surfing. But El Salvador is a very tough country, um, really poor, terrible gang and crime problems and kind of living off remissions from the U.S. So I found myself surfing in the mornings early when it was glassy and not too hot. And then in the middle of the day, kind of reporting, going around talking to people about the political situation, which is kind of extraordinary there. And in the evenings when it cooled off and the wind dropped, um, surfing again. It was a good balance. I... <laughs> I feel like when I've done really intense reporting, that's exactly what I need is morning surfing and evening surfing. And of course I don't surf. By the way, before I forget, I'm 48 years old and I've never stood up on a surfboard. Should I bother at this point? Well, if you're dying to do it, you can manage it at the right place at the right time. Maybe with a teacher or something on a, on a beginner's board in the right kind of waves. But it's, it's if you want to 
surf a lot or surf well, it's too late. <laughs> that's right. I knew you, I knew that's the answer, Ed, because I think you've written as much, and yet I I had to hear it from you myself. Um, speaking of surfing and aging, I mean, you talk at the end of Barbarian Days a little bit about your body slowing down, and I remember there's there's a kind of poignant part where you say that you're finally swimming laps, which the real surfer and you would never have done. You would never have swum back and forth just for exercise. And, you know, that was coming up on, I don't know, 10 years ago now. Is there an, a, yet another chapter to surfing? Like what, where, how does one surf as a man? What are you, 60-ish? 69. Oh my. It, it gets worse and worse. Um, I mean, at the time I finished Barbarian Days, I was still fighting off getting what's called a longboard, which is much easier to paddle and surf and catch waves on than, than a shortboard where you have to be quick and strong. And uh, I'd been on a shortboard most of my life and it was getting to be time. And finally, on a Father's Day, maybe five years ago, my wife and daughter said, uh, I mean, they gave me a longboard for Father's Day. I said, you're an old man, Dad, come on. <laughs> but it's it's a long, slow a uh, miserable process of, uh, as surfers would say, becoming a kook again. So how does that work then? You hear that there's going to be a great swell and obviously you want you want the New Yorker to pay for you to go catch it. Do you then find a hook to get the New Yorker to pay your way? And do your editors know you're doing that? Like how, what's, how does, what's the transactional process by which you get them to foot the bill for your surfing life? Uh, this is a vexed question, although it didn't come into play on this trip, which the New Yorker did not pay for. But I have had even another trip to El Salvador, I, I went actually during the Civil War to cover an election, which was quite a violent thing. And when the reporting was done and I filed my story, I, I actually went off the clock and and uh, went down to the coast and, and surfed um, to kind of wash off the, the misery of the events I'd covered. But yeah, on other stories, I have been able to, to you know, go to Western Australia and and do my reporting on you know the iron ore uh, boom there, but um, also get in some waves, and not really discuss it too much with my editors. You know, you you've written two two books, one that I keep rereading and one that I've taught. Um, I've worked with Cold New World in classrooms, and I keep rereading Barbarian Days. And I, if I'm not mistaken, the reporting of Cold New World, which largely takes place in the American inland in places like inland California and New Haven came after you had kind of washed ashore from a decade or so of chasing waves and surfing. Is that is that more or less accurate? Yeah, that's true. Although you, you mentioned the part of the book that takes place in inland California, that was in the Antelope Valley, um, kind of outside LA, which was a really intense place at the time. I was writing about skinheads, you know, both white supremacist skinheads and anti-racist skinheads who had a gang war going on. And it was so miserable. It was near where I grew up and it was kind of a, a generation later and how life had changed mainly for the worse in that part of California. And I took breaks when I felt like I was going mad hanging around with these uh, neo-Nazi kids and went surfing and, you know, just drove over the mountains to Malibu and, and really, really appreciated the breaks. You know, just quiet mornings, not necessarily great waves, but just to be around, you know, seagulls and, and waves and, and seals and, and, and not bitter racial hatred. Yeah, I should, I should say so. That gets to what I, was, what I was getting at a little bit, which was I was curious about your own temperament because the years that you describe in Barbarian Days there was so much solitude. I and mean, of course you were traveling for a good bit of it with your friend, Brian, right? But not always. You also had months at a time when you didn't really know anyone, right? Or you wouldn't encounter many other English speakers. And then a lot of the reporting you do, and I, I know that, I mean, I've done 
kind of reporting myself in tragic situations where not only are you talking to other people, but you're wallowing in other people's suffering to some extent. It seems to me that those are two very different temperaments. And I'm curious if you think of yourself as someone who enjoys being around other people or or not, because I could not have handled, I can do the latter, but the solitude of the former, I think re- would have really gotten to me. And yet you seem very much in your element there. Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I've been surfing forever and had to kind of choose a few places and, and people to focus on in barbarian days. In every case, I, I wrote about places and and times where I, I shared waves with a friend and a lot of the book is really about male friendship, um, perhaps more than surfing even. And I skipped places where I did lots of surfing. Uh, in South Africa, for instance, I was I was uh, posted up at one of the best waves in the world quite a lot, but I was alone, as you say. And and I mean, I surfed with other people, but but no good friend. And, and without that kind of triangulation, without the relationship, the friendship, just saying, oh, I surfed this wave, I surfed that wave, was really quite boring on the page and didn't interest me to write about. So there is all that time alone, but, but there's not much... I don't find to really to say about it. And it's in the water, if this is what you're talking about, although perhaps it's not, um, there is a way in which even when there are other people around, you're, you're very much, uh, especially when the waves are serious, it's, it's sort of between you and the ocean and you have to shut out everything else and pay very close attention to what the ocean's doing. The kind of reporting you're talking about where you're covering a war, a famine, like something terrible going on. And yet, I don't know. I I find that by talking to people and kind of hanging around rather than just doing quick interviews about, you know, who was lost and how how there was no food or that kind of thing, you get down into sort of social lives and and political lives that are are rich and interesting. And I I rarely find myself completely kind of undone by uh, what people have suffered, even when it's incredibly dramatic and, and incredibly terrible. There's usually some resilience, something going on with people that is interesting, um, if only their construction of what has happened and, and, and the longer you hang around, how that changes and changes. And it's in some ways in poor countries, which is what I'm thinking of, it's a kind of richer interaction than it sounds. Yeah, I mean, you, you met people and slowly in your 20s, you began, it seemed to me, to craft the idea that you could write for a living and that a lot of these people you met, like the children you taught in South Africa, would be stories. It seems to me you started off in in the book thinking, I just want to surf a lot. And maybe that's my misreading of it. And then at some point you came upon a whole box of New Yorkers, I think, and began reading your way through them. And then when you were in South Africa, you thought, well, I could write about this. I'm curious, when along the way did you say, I think think I want to be a writer. When I finally have to make a living, that's how I'll do it. Actually, I always thought of myself as a writer since I was little. And my parents subscribed to The New Yorker. I read it all my life. So that box of New Yorkers in, that appears in Australia was just a bunch of used magazines that I found and, and bought for my friend Brian for Christmas at a penny apiece. Um, and he just was uh, leafing through them. And it was fun, actually, to look at The New Yorker from that long, long yeah. distance, from especially from the Australian out back, you know, putting the writing to that test. But um, I actually... Surfing was this thing I did since I was a kid, um, and did it you know, pretty obsessively, um, like like most people who get into it young do. But I really didn't think about it much, didn't talk about it. I really just thought of myself as a writer and spent all my time reading and writing, and my journals are all full of that from teenage years onward, um, and very little about surfing. 
I was writing fiction in my late teens and early 20s and not really getting anywhere. I mean, you know, these these huge unpublishable novels. Learning, I suppose, but um, not getting toward making a living. And it was only when I, I started writing nonfiction and and discovering that, that you could do some quite interesting writing with nonfiction that I kind of turned and I also turned toward politics after um, you mentioned the job I had teaching high school outside Cape Town. Uh, this is in the battle days of apartheid. Super intense um, political atmosphere, students, the, the township where I worked. And it kind of caused me to make a 90-degree turn in, in what I was interested in from, from this kind of romantic fiction I've been writing to wanting to write about politics and power. So it was a, it was a sort of double turn there, but it wasn't that I hadn't thought of myself as a writer. It was just a different kind of writer. I hope you don't get tired of these surfing questions uh, because— Never. Okay. Um, but my special entree into your work is that I'm weirdly um, in love with writing about surfing. Not all of it, of course. There's a lot of it that's bad, but I really love Kem Nunn's work. I like Tim Winton's work. I actually liked Daniel Duane's work before I knew of anyone else writing about surfing. And it seems to me a pretty small subgenre. Whenever I'm bored and I Google, you know, top 10, you know, surf magazine or something or outside magazine will occasionally do top 10 books about surfing. And it's always like some, you know, rearrangement of the same 10 books. It doesn't seem to me like there are a hundred books on it. it. seems to me you're like a big dude in a, fair, in a fairly interesting and, and somewhat new subculture of writing. And I guess I'm curious, do you think of yourself that way? And do you read these other authors at all? Are you curious how other writers write about waves and surf culture? Well, I read the surf websites as they now are, because most of the magazines have gone out of business. But they're very different. I mean, they're directed at surfers. So they never describe what it's like to ride a wave or anything, because everybody already knows that. Hmm. Um, Barbarian Days is, is written for the, for the general public, um, which is co- just a completely different language that you use um, and, and the set of assumptions. Um, Dan Duane's book was actually written for, for general readers too. But there haven't been many of those. And I was actually unaware of like a whole, I don't even know if it's a subgenre, but um, in Australia, my book kept getting reviews, you know, not your usual surfing book. And I think, what? Is what is the usual surfing, surfing book? Yeah. <laughs> and it's and and they'd even say, you know, where are the naughty bits? Where's where's the cocaine and the <laughs> and the redemption and 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 all that? And it turns out that there's a whole genre of of it's mainly. I mean, surfing is more of a mainstream sport in right. Australia than it is in the U.S. And the top guys, you know, the champions and top women are, uh, you know, big celebrities. Can't walk down the street, sort of thing. And each one of them gets a at least one biography, and very often they contain all you know the naughty bits and the and, uh-huh. the, and the drugs and dissipation and then redemption um, and behind the music great behind the waves I'm, yeah yeah and they're um, like some of them are people I'm really interested in mainly because of their surfing um, but I was unaware of these books this whole shelf full of books that my book was being added to and I, I there aren't that many people who write about surfing that I'm thrilled with. I mean, other surfers, yes, but I mean, that would be of any interest to the general public, I mean, to the general reader, I can't think of anybody. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned some people you like, and, and I happen to like their work too, but it's, it, I don't think it is a, a budding uh, niche of literature. I could be wrong. <laughs> Much as I want it to be. Final question, two-parter. Uh, so what are you working on now? Maybe it's the El Salvador thing, but maybe you have something else you want to tell us about. And what are you reading now? Actually, I'm, I'm working on uh, a piece about Penn Station, um, uh-huh. which is, as people 
probably know the big subway and rail hub in New York City, the busiest rail station in the United States, as a matter of fact, and is a huge mess, incredibly dangerous, and has Madison Square Garden squatting on top of it like a toad. And everybody wants to do something about it, but, you know, of course, billionaire developers want to do one thing, and, and the city needs another. So I'm working on that right now. I've written about rail and, and the subway system um, and in the past. And I, I just reread, actually, a book that I disliked the first time, uh, a novel by James Salter called mm-hmm. Solo Faces. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, there's a lot of good writing about climbing, and uh, this is a climbing novel, um, rather short, but um, I didn't give it the right chance the first time I read it. I, I read it fast looking for I'm not sure what, and I slowed way down on um, this time, and I've just been absolutely loving it. It's about a kind of a blank, kind of a cipher, this guy from California who ends up in the Alps above above Chamonix in France and doing these tremendous uh, big climbs and uh, his kind of adventures and demoralizing life in France. So James Salter, Solo Faces. All right. I'll check it out. I tried another Salter and couldn't get through it. It was a very sexy one set in France. Uh, a sport and a pastime. Uh, yes, yes. And I, I found it, I was at about page 100. I thought, this is pretty good smut, but I'm not really interested. <laughs> but I'll try I thought it was great smut myself. Okay, it was, It was. yeah, you're right. It was high-level smut. Uh, and, and I all due respect to high-level smut. Um, anyway, William Finnegan, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Mazel tovs. Uh, I have a farewell and a welcome this week. First of all, uh, some of you saw the obituary for Solomon Peril. He was the Jew who passed as a Nazi to survive and whose story was made into the really terrific movie Europa Europa, which is is definitely worth a watch. It's really, really haunting and, and a very, very, it's a beautifully done movie. And he was 97 years old. And I had always known that was based on a true story, but I didn't know the guy was alive and, and he no longer is. So a farewell to Solomon Peril. And a welcome to Ann Arbor listener, member of the J Crew, Eric Jordan. He was at our live show. He just went before his bait din and welcome home to Judaism. It's uh, it's great to have you back to where your soul wanted to be. And it was so great of you to turn out to our show. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much. And great to see you. Stay in touch, Eric Jordan. I also have a mazel tov. It goes out to producer Josh Cross's son, Miles Cross. He just got into the University of Chicago. We are all so proud of you, Miles, and we can't wait to move you in. Uh, Liel, how about you? So a couple of days ago, Yaakov Israel Paley, five, and his brother Asher Menachem Paley, seven, were mowed down by a Palestinian terrorist in Jerusalem who just drove right over them and killed two precious boys. And I just want to say, may the memory be a blessing. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios, hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer, who was in Barcelona today. Our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jerome Rusque, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Write to us, unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or call us, 914-570-4869. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Please rate us on whatever platform service you might use. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox name by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail, P.O. Box 2007999-1001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Kimberly Herzog-Cohen at Temple Emanuel in Dallas, Texas. And we come to you from the continually refurbished, I mean, it's just a work in progress, this, this beautiful room 
continually being outfitted with better acoustics, better furniture, better people, Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. And now, producer Robert Scaramuccia tries Dr. Brown's Celery. I mean, this looks like Dr. Brown's natural flavor. Cel- mm. It says celery, and it says it's celery soda with other natural flavors. Would you try that for me? Uh, I don't particularly want to, but you are my boss. Oh my <laughs> you should not have it on the record of how we're pressuring. <laughs> wow. Let me... Oh, I, I think it, it smells like, <laughs> right? I think it smells like celery. I don't, let me, hold on, let me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not bad. I can't tell you the last time I had celery in my life, so I can't really compare it. Exactly. Oh, I'm gonna drink. I'm gonna drink the rest of it. Um, 140 calories. <laughs>